Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. To those of you who haven't listened before, welcome. For those of you who are familiar with the podcast, we're trying something a little different. Instead of monthly installments, we'll be releasing them every two weeks. Each month, you'll hear one newsy episode and another that features an interview. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the latest news. They'll also cover a weird jewelry story of the week. All right, everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com. This is Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. Well, it's good to be here. I am sadly not in New York this week. I'm calling in from my home in Los Angeles. I'm missing out on a really wonderful week full of jam-packed with events because it's the second annual NYC Jewelry Week. I wish I was there to attend the symposiums and panels and gallery openings and all the million events I've been invited to that I unfortunately have had to decline. Have you been hitting up any of the events? Monday, I actually attended two events. I was on a panel about e-commerce and jewelry, and then I got to hear an interview with David and Sybil Yerman. I have to say it was a really interesting interview because I didn't know their whole background, like they were beatniks, and I think Sybil hung out in this house where, like, Jack Kerouac used to sleep on the floor because he was hung over all the time. And, you know, they kind of intersected with a lot of these artists. And one of the things that was kind of interesting is they talked a lot about how, you know, the whole beatnik philosophy of being open and learning things and always trying to take things from the universe. In, in a way, that's kind of informed their business. That's one of the things they give credit for their success to, the fact that they were always very open and they ran things by a lot of people and they weren't afraid to try new things, but they also believed in focus. And obviously when they had the cable concept, that was something that really took off huge for them and advertising for them. So it was just really interesting to find that they had this kind of like groovy background. And at one point, the moderator asked, weren't the beatniks like the hippies? And David German said, no, no, the beatniks were nothing like the hippies. And then he gave three reasons why they were different, because he said the beatniks were more doers and poets and intellectuals. But I mean, it was just a really interesting background that I never knew about them. I'm glad you brought it up, because I have interviewed David on a couple occasions, and that history has come up their whole life in upstate New York. And then there was a time when David went out to California, of course, and spent time in Venice Beach. And every time I hear it, I just think, wow, you live this like idyllic late 60s, kind of early 70s life. It sounds like it was kind of the quintessential lifestyle for that era. Him and Sybil just kind of grooving, making art, not caring too much about the commercial end of the business. And then, you know, to imagine where they've come since all that. But the origins of it are so authentic and so genuine and so like you say, just groovy, <sighs> that it is a great story. It's an it's an amazing origin myth, all the better because it's totally real. Yeah, certainly wasn't what I expect knowing them. You know, I expected yeah. them to be just standard jewelry people, and they have a very artistic bent and artistic background. You know, in some ways, I think I know a lot of jewelers who have that background. I mean, it's a lot of those artists, right. kind of designers, artisans, they come from that real tradition. And I think what it is, is few of those people 
go on to become these mega brands. I mean, you can think of very few brands that have come out in the last 20, 30 years that are, you know, come from that pure artisan background. Those people tend to not be great commercial successes because they're not business people, they're artists. And so it really speaks to that combination. I mean, everybody says it's Sybil who's sort of driven business end of that company and that David's the artist. And I imagine it's the two of them together that there's some gestalt at work there. You know, and they've never made it really part of the brand. Like something like Ben and Jerry's, the fact that they were ex-hippies or current hippies or kind of true believing hippies, you know, that's a huge part of that brand, right? And that's yeah. part of the marketing. And that this whole background is not necessarily part of the David German brand, even though it it seems to inform it in a, in a huge way. I mean, he doesn't mention it, so I don't think they hide it, but you're right. Their brand is very refined and very, you know, in some ways the, the marketing of it and the advertising and all the campaigns, while they're very beautiful, they don't seem that much different from other lifestyle brands or lifestyle jewelry brands. They're just very polished. They've got beautiful models. photography. But yeah, this kind of more artsy background doesn't find its way there. But you're right, it does inform it. And it endears me certainly to David because he's very, he's a very likable person. And he's very easy to interview when you can land his time. He's obviously very pressed for time. But what else do you have? You're speaking on. So, yeah, so I was on a panel and it was also an FIT. It was on e commerce and jewelry and it was sponsored by eBay. And that was very interesting because it was a, a variety of perspectives. And you had the eBay perspective and you had the kind of young designer perspective. And I think a lot of people were wondering how they established themselves on platforms like eBay and Etsy and Instagram. The, the idea, I think, now is that in particular, those small kind of designery brands, they have a different kind of relationship with the consumer because the consumer is buying in a lot of times directly from the artist, the creator, right? So it becomes much more of a personal interaction. It's much more about shared values, the personal interaction and, and the personality of the person who's selling it. So it's not like you're kind of dealing with this kind of nameless, faceless corporation. You're dealing with a human being, right? And it's a very different kind of interaction. It's the kind of modern day version of buying something at like a small boutique in a, or a small table at a craft fair. You're buying from a person. So I thought that was interesting. Obviously, a lot of talk about sustainability. And one of the things that I've been thinking about and I brought up is this idea is that sustainability, it's not something that's an end goal that you stop. It's a process. As an industry, we have to stop looking for some kind of magic bullet that will automatically make everything okay. I mean, there are good products like fair trade gold and, you know, fair mine gold. I mean, those are excellent products and people can very proudly sell those. But, you know, most of the, the mainstream things that you hear, lab-grown diamonds, you know, diamonds certified by the Kimberly process, recycled gold. I mean, all these things have issues. I mean, recycled gold, it's recycled, so it sounds good, but it can certainly be a vehicle for money laundering and lab-grown diamonds, you know, use a lot of electricity, and obviously the Kimberly process has huge, huge issues. So it's not necessarily a matter of you buy this one product and all of a sudden you're magically considered sustainable. It's a process. You're always trying to do better. You're always trying to be more ethical, just like people should always try to be better people. 
right? So it's a process of always doing better. And I think as an industry, people don't necessarily want to engage with these issues. They don't have time to deal with these issues, which is understandable, right? They don't want to think about it. They just want something that'll make people's yeah. complaints go away or make people's questions go away. And in the end, that's not going to cut it. You're always going to require due diligence. You're always going to have to be checking up on your suppliers. If you really care about these issues, and certainly every person should care about these issues because the plan is an important thing, it has to be a continual process of always doing better and always upping our game. Well, you've definitely hit the nail on the head. And it's a topic that I've been, I mean, it's a topic I've been thinking about for years, but over the last few weeks, I've been especially preoccupied with Bear with me for a minute or two while I explain why. It'll sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but I will bring it back to this topic of sustainability. As many of you know, I do a lot of freelance writing on the side for some consumer publications, and I've had a long relationship with the New York Times with their luxury sections. And I pulled together a piece. It was a roundtable discussion on jewelry that was a conversation with five jewelry lovers that I pulled together in Southern California at the Sunset Tower Hotel in late October. And my editor specifically wanted me to include somebody who, in her initial email, hated jewelry. And I just thought, God, that's going to be kind of hard and weird. And how do I find that person? And what I did was I reached out to a blogger that I follow on Instagram named Whitney Lee Morris. Her website is called tinycanalcottage.com. She lives in a canal cottage, which is the Venice Beach Canals. If any of you have been to L.A., they're really a gorgeous, super scenic part of Venice. She lives in a less than 400 square foot space with her husband. There's three-year-old son and two dogs. And she lives, I mean, if you follow her Instagram, it's just so beautifully, you know, really thoughtfully, carefully. And I thought, here's somebody, I'd seen her wearing jewelry in one of her Instagram pics, but I also know she's a real zero waste proponent and talks a lot about reusing and recycling and, you know, checking books out from the library, not buying things. And so I thought this was a great person to have on the panel. And in fact, she, she was, she really was. She came in, she talked about her engagement ring and her wedding band, both of which are family heirlooms from the two grandmothers on one on her side, one on her husband's side. She didn't know if the diamonds were real. She didn't care. She had one other ring that somebody had made for her that spells out her son's name and turns her finger green. So Whitney Lee Morris was just stuck, stuck with me because she hasn't bought a piece of jewelry in seven years. She's not interested in diamonds. When I asked her about lab grown, she said, well, you know, when we can repurpose things or buy vintage pieces, why are we making anything? And here it was so blunt that I started really thinking about, you know, all the jewelry we consume. And is there a single jeweler out there that would pass her high standard? And, and she did, in fact, email me a link to a company that makes pearls using sustainable glass. So they're not pearls. I mean, they're not pearls as we know them in the fine industry, but they're glass pearls. And by the looks of it on their website, they look just like pearls. And here was a product that somebody that's super, you know, super eco-friendly, sustainable consumer is okay with purchasing. And I thought, wow, you know, this leaves the fine industry in a really challenging place. If you're trying to cater to consumers that care more and more about living green, being green, embracing a sustainable lifestyle, zero waste, recycling, reducing, reusing. I mean, the fine industry has a long way to go and probably will never really get there. And I don't mean that to sound like doomsday or that ultimately consumers will turn off from our industry because I think 
always people, and there are a number of other people on the panel who are jewelry lovers and followed brands and followed designers and really spoke to, had a real passion for the products that this industry makes. There's a whole nother side. And I've just, it's gotten under my skin and I find myself like using plastic creamers from the coffee shop and thinking, uh, 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 what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, I think all of us are probably coming to this conversation in one form or another in our own families, in our own homes, or maybe we should be. I think once it gets under your skin, that's that's good. It starts to force you to think differently about the things you're purchasing. Can I, can I ask you, how does this woman make a living? Like, what does she do for a living? There is some sponsored content on her Instagram. And so I think she has some relationships with companies about whose products she does use or other I don't know if they're websites or companies that she supports, but there's a lot of affiliate marketing, you know, if you click through on anything, but she's not a purchaser of things. She's not, you know, and I, she seems like a, right. She seems like an unlikely salesperson in a way, because if she's not a purchaser, I assume she attracts like-minded non-purchasers, right? Right. So I think there's companies like I've just had a, a number of conversations. There are other companies that don't exactly sell products, but will point you to like there's a company called Buy Me Once. It's a website and it pinpoints products that are built to last, have long warranties. You know, the idea being that, you know, you'll buy this one thing and you don't have to keep buying it three times over in your lifetime or four times or five times over. You buy it once and you use it forever and then you pass it down. And that's the most sustainable way to live. And so there are companies like that that I think you can support as an Instagrammer or influencer or blogger who cares about zero waste that, you know, still make you a living and yet feed up some sort of consumer-based economy. I mean, I, I get it. All this zero waste conversation is really at odds with everything we do in our space. I mean, we exist because there are advertisers selling to retailers who are then selling to consumers and it's all product-based. So it's complicated. I mean, what's interesting, what strikes me as you're speaking is, I mean, obviously you need economic development. Like people have to sell, they have to buy, they, you know, we all have to eat, right? Unless we're all going to go raise our own food. And we make our living in a certain way. And, you know, most of the people in our industry make livings in a certain way. And, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up with things like lab-grown diamonds is that, you know, there are countries that depend on on mining and of uh, diamonds and gold and other materials and you know sometimes these non-sustainable practices that people say well we can just get rid of them they mean a lot to people in certain countries whose whose very existence depends on them so i think one of the things that i think we have an issue with is what is sustainable what is quote unquote eco friendly i I mean, I read plenty of this stuff, but I don't know if we necessarily have a good definition of, you know, what's the quote unquote best way to live or what's the, even the best way to do business in an eco-friendly way. I mean, it's certainly out of, you know, beyond my pay grade and probably beyond this podcast, but like what? A bit ambitious. Yeah, a bit, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna solve it in Correct. the next ten minutes. Uh, exactly. Before Except the world directs. right, before I get to Here the we weird go. story of the week, I'll figure out what uh, <laughs> sustainable is. But the, the, I mean, I think it's a little, 
you know, I, I think it's sometimes very puzzling because I think people do care, obviously. I mean, we have a huge problem with the climate and with the environment. I mean, I, I think most people admit that. But how do you mm-hmm. bring that into your daily life? What is the best practice? I think it's not necessarily that clear. And it's certainly not 100% clear in the jewelry industry when there's also this marketing imperative that people use it as a, as a marketing thing. podcast, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. Well, you know, I had a conversation literally this morning with a green blogger. She's groovygreenliving.com. I was asking her about green kids gifts, and I asked her, you know, is there a product out there kid-related or not, that is 100% sustainable. And she said, you know, the only real way to do that is to go down to your farmer's market and buy something that's been like carved from reclaimed wood by a local artisan and take it home. Because the even if that product was to be put on a plane, it's still, the product is perhaps 100% sustainable, but then it goes on a plane and there are carbon emissions. And so I don't think there is a product out there that's marketed in, in a volume way at all that that can claim 100% sustainability and definitely not in the jewelry space. But I should say a couple of bloggers that I've spoken to who specialize in this topic did call out Melissa Joy Manning, positioned herself in this way. She's a Berkeley-based jeweler, also has a studio in Brooklyn and, you know, uses reclaimed gold and conflict-free stones and we'd have to look deeper into her processes. But Yeah, I think, you know, in an ideal world, which is clearly not this one, people would all put their processes online and Mm -hmm. people could judge them. And it wouldn't be a marketing thing. It just would be, this is how I get my materials. This is the due diligence. This is the process I follow. And people could make their decisions based on all that. But it wouldn't necessarily be a marketing hook. It would just be something that people would do. And people would be able to make their decisions based on the criteria that are are listed. And it would all, of course, be audited and you'd have to be 100% honest. Well, you know what? Funny enough, in my conversations, because I have been sort of drilling down on this, um, there is a brand that does that. It's not a jewelry brand. It's a Finnish kind of accessories brand called Lovia, L-O-V-I-A, collection.com. And they apparently break down every part of their supply chain and tell you how it was made, who made it, they have a whole section on their site called Transparency DNA. So it's exactly what you're talking about. And yeah, that sounds like a pretty brilliant standard to shoot for. I'm not sure it'll ever be possible. One thing you mentioned that I thought was interesting was there was kind of this blasé attitude towards diamonds that you found. Yes. None of the people on my panel really seemed jazzed about diamonds. One guy, he was wearing a couple of cool diamond rings, but I'm not even sure they were real. They were vintage finds. He showed me a piece he wants to buy for himself, and it was on Jackie Aish's website. That's how I connected with him, was through Beverly Hills jeweler Jackie Aish. He loved this gold and diamond link bracelet that she had, but he said he wanted it in rubies. And he was very explicit. He said, you know, they may not be marketed as well, or funded as well, but I really love the colored stones, you know, emeralds and rubies and such. And he really nailed it, you know. I mean, it it felt like 
it's true. They're not marketed as well. And of course, that's a huge reason why they're not as sought after, you know, in a volume mainstream kind of way. But yeah, the other real diamond lover, or pardon me, jewelry lover, this woman, Connie Wone, who's an event organizer in Portland and came to me by way of the jeweler, Andy Liff, or Andy Lifschutz, who goes by Andy Liff. She had a custom engagement ring from him that had a watermelon tourmaline in it, a beautiful ring, but it was not a diamond ring. It had some diamonds on it, but I mean, they were all in their late thirties up to age 50 and they all had something meaningful to say about jewelry, but none of them had a diamond solitaire. And in fact, the woman who had had a diamond solitaire for her wedding 15 years ago, wasn't wearing it. And she was like, you know, I just doesn't go with my style anymore. I want to have it reset. I had hoped that I would be able to get like a 20 something or like a 22 year old to talk about jewelry, but I don't think diamonds would have been in their sphere either. I don't know what this means for the diamond industry, but it did make me think that at least on the coasts, you know, on the West coast and probably on the, you know, in New York and thereabouts that people are exploring all kinds of alternatives to diamonds right now. Speaking of which, I do want to talk a little bit about the De Beers research that they put out. So now, obviously, De Beers has found that there's a high desire for diamonds, as you can imagine, in any research uh, they would put out. They certainly would not show declining interest in diamonds. But uh, they, they made up a couple interesting points. You know, what we kind of call bridal, what we've known bridal, is now kind of in this general category of commitment diamonds. That with so many people living together before they get married, it's not necessarily about the kind of standard engagement than wedding. And that's when you sell jewelry. You know, it's people in committed relationships have a lot of different stages along the way. And what we used to call bridal is now commitment. And they also brought up same-sex marriages, how that's a growing part of the market, and how more women are buying jewelry and diamonds for themselves. And that's another huge part of the market. And it showed me that society is changing very quickly, and it's changing the industry also. And the question is, is the industry keeping up with these larger changes in society? And that's why I appreciate, I think it's great that De Beers is doing this kind of research because it's really important for us to understand what's going on out there. And it doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in the minds of people in the jewelry industry, which is a traditional, older, conservative industry. It's really important for us to reflect what's going on out there because things are changing. Oh, God. Amen. No, I think you're right. And I think it's great that De Beers has taken a lead on singling out these changes because I do think most jewelers, at least not the designer end, but the kind of the more industry end of things, the more manufacturing end of things, is still very much stuck in that old, you know, engagements, wedding set kind of view. I don't know. There hasn't been a lot of recognition of the way people live and get together in relationships these days. It feels like very, still very 1950s in some ways. Right. Because the entire basis of this business is a man getting down on his knee and proposing with a diamond engagement ring. That's really, really, if you want to, you know, the reason we all have jobs is because of that particular tradition. And Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that's an outdated tradition because plenty of people do it, but there's a million variations of it. It's not the kind of standard 
thing that happens. I mean, you know, sometimes proposals aren't necessarily this kind of formal thing. They're usually something that kind of develops over time and people decide, okay, we're going to get married. And then it's it's not necessarily the kind of formal proposal that this industry really bates its, its business on. And that's mm-hmm. a huge challenge. Like, how do we meet this new consumer who has a very different view of these things? I mean, they used to call... When I started, they used to say diamond engagement rings are, quote-unquote, a cultural imperative. And the interesting thing now is that marriage is not necessarily a cultural imperative, Mm -hmm. right? So where does that leave diamond engagement rings? And I think there still is a market. It's just a matter of meeting that market and understanding that market. I mean, when I think about the panelists that I had, one had a watermelon tourmaline engagement ring that she was somewhat involved in the design of it. One wasn't wearing her ring from 15 years ago because it just didn't match her style anymore. One wore a piece that had been handed down, had no idea if diamonds were real or not. One was a man who had decided he didn't want an engagement ring when he was married to his ex and didn't get one. And then one was uh, looking at custom designing his his partner a ring when when it was you know when they were ready but they were going to use her grandmother's ring as the base ring the central piece so yeah none of those were any part of that traditional narrative had anything to do with it so i'm glad de beers is recognized <laughs> on a less profound note it's yes. time for the weird story of the week this one got a lot of publicity so you may have heard about this and this is from cbs news A California woman says she dreamed about swallowing her engagement ring to protect it during a heist on a high-speed train. She later realized she actually did swallow her ring (laughs) in her sleep. Jenna Evans (laughs) wrote about her ordeal in a Facebook post last week that has since gone viral. She explained she was having a vivid dream in which she and her fiancé were in a, quote, sketchy situation involving a high-speed train and some bad guys. He told me I had to swallow my ring to protect it, so I popped that sucker off, put it in my ri- mouth, and swallowed it with a glass of water. So she's like sleepwalking-ish or somehow wake enough to take her ring off. Yeah. Actually stomach, I mean, the process of swallowing a ring cannot be easy, yeah. right? Have you ever imagined? Yeah, I, I think it would, would hurt a bit. Right. With her going yeah. down, it's not a. And you'd need something like some water or some help. Yeah. To well, get she, it so she, she did have water. So she swallowed it with a glass of water. And she said, I. In her sleep. In her, uh, I guess half awake, half asleep. And she said, I assume this too was a dream because who actually swallows their engagement ring? So I went back to sleep. Oh my God. The next day, they <laughs> realized the ring was missing. So they <laughs> took a trip to urgent care where she struggled to explain why she was there. Because she was laughing and crying so hard. And oh an God. x-ray confirmed the ring was sitting just beyond her stomach in her intestines. She says oh. the doctor, oh yeah, she says the doctor told her she would have to get a procedure to remove it rather than waiting for it to pass through her system. Oh, so she wasn't just be able to wait for it yeah, to, come, to out. come out. Yeah, which is... Uh, I mean, neither option is great, but I I think probably removing it the surgical way would be yeah. a little yeah. a little less gross. Yeah. 
She went to a gastroenterologist and described feeling some pain with the ring inside. That's when she started to worry. The doctors retrieved the ring during an upper endoscopy procedure and gave it to Howell, making for a happy ending. Like, I, oh I, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Bobby finally gave me my ring back this morning. She said, I promise not to swallow it again. We're still getting married. And, <laughs> and all is right with the world. Thanks, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Our guest in two weeks is going to be Sally Morrison, Chief Marketing Officer of Lightbox Jewelry and a veteran of World Go Council and Gem Fields. And she's done a lot of stuff. And she's going to give us the inside scoop on Lightbox, which I know everybody's fascinated with. For listening to the Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on the Jewelry District by JCK.